This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. While the state has set a date to drop the indoor mask mandate, Chicago still hasn't. The mayor and Dr. Allison Arwadi saying more is to come next week. Our guest this week is 15th Ward Alderman Ray Lopez. Thanks for joining us today, Alderman. Let me ask you this. Why do you think the mayor is reluctant to go along with the state's February 28th date to lift the uh, mask mandate? You know, all throughout the pandemic, Nick, we have seen where Mayor Lightfoot has chosen to march to her own drummer, regardless of what the science, the state, the CDC, or anyone else has to say. And this is uh, no different. Uh, that is why a number of aldermen, including myself, sent her a letter saying that she needs to end the mandates immediately. And as we're hearing from her now saying, well, you need new metrics and you need to meet new criteria for two sustained weeks or otherwise we won't do it. You know, it just feels like she's moving the goalposts yet again in order to maintain her control and grip on the situation as it has her stamp on it and nobody else's. Well, and it's concerning when we're seeing other big cities now uh, kind of opening up and getting rid of these mandates. But here we are. Is this going to hurt Chicago's economy? The mandates have hurt Chicago's economy already. I have heard from numerous business owners who have felt the pinch because of customers not fully happy with what's going on. And we've seen where the situation has turned sometimes violent, sometimes destructive, as we saw with the Wiener Circle uh, just last week, where someone threw a brick through their door mm -hmm. because they were upset about the mask mandate requirements. And look, before all of this was on politics, Democrats were saying the Republicans were, were not having any kind of restrictions because it was a political thing. But now we have Democrats lifting restrictions, ending mandates, and yet the mayor still won't listen. She still won't follow suit, and she's trying to yet again manipulate science in order to keep her control and to keep her authority in check. Because right now, everything she can do in Chicago is based solely on the fact that she's declared an emergency in the city. Once that ends... She will have to deal with city council. She will have to deal with the legislative process. She will have to deal with living within a normal democratic uh, governing city. And she's not looking forward to doing that. Well, and so I take it that the letter that you all sent her probably fell on deaf ears. Um, like water on a duck's back. <laughs> um, but I will tell you um, that especially after listening to some of the comments from Arwady and Lightfoot over the last few days on how they're not committed to ending their executive and public health orders, keeping in line with even the Democratic governor, J.B. Pritzker, uh, we may need to look at the city council stepping in and issuing an order of its own uh, requiring the mayor and commissioner to pull back uh, these mandates. You know, there's been talk in Springfield about how, you know, J.B. Pritzker really didn't have the authority that uh, at least he did initially. But to just keep reauthorizing that emergency order, uh, lawmakers argue that should have been handled in the legislature. Is it the same thinking among you and your colleagues here in the city council? Is there some thought that maybe some of these things should be handled by the council? Maybe an initial emergency order is fine. But when you go to re-up that... Shouldn't there be some input from the people that represent the citizens? Absolutely. And that crosses all 
political philosophies in the city council, we understand when an emergency happens, the executive needs to be able to act. And that's why most executive orders, emergency orders in particular, only last for 90 days. But what we've seen both at the state as well as uh, the city level is that there have been re-ups and amendments at every 89th day to continue that executive order's life. And that is basically an end run around democracy. You know, if this was going to be a sustained pandemic as we knew it was going to be uh, six months in, then we should have had some legislative input and laws put in place to address the issues of vaccination, to address the issues of uh, mask requirements, to address all of these issues. You know, what we've seen from Mayor Lightfoot is that it is far easier just to keep manipulating the executive orders than to try and work with the 50 members of the city council. And unfortunately, she has a large set of enablers who are willing to just sit at home and not be required to do the heavy lifting and allow the mayor to just continue to live by fiat. So it sounds like the council's, is it fair to say, divided? Uh, I would say yes. The council is very much divided on this matter. There are some who have capitulated and are happy to allow her to continue uh, operating by dictate uh, from now until the end of her term, to be quite frank. Then there are those of us who believe that we were elected to represent the people and to defend their interests in this body, uh, and we want to be able to have that right to do so. So what's your, I know you can't read the tea leaves, but if you could, I guess, or look into the magic ball, when the city finally does drop the mandate, is it still, do you think, going to be required in schools? Is that something that's come up at all? You know, there are a number, again, that's another issue where council members are divided. There are those who believe that we need to be able to start uh learning to live with this virus so that we can get our economy, our, our society back open again. And there are others who uh, choose to be barricaded behind closed doors, closed offices, and closed faces uh, out of fear of the virus. You know, we can't allow this virus to, to win, and we can continue to vaccinate people, continue to offer tests, continue to offer everything. But we need to come up with a workable solution so that society can exists once again. And I don't think that we're at a point yet where we're going to have any kind of clarity on this issue unless there's either a political leadership change or if members of the city council finally step up and show some authority over those that want our money and want our leadership to start requiring things to change. You know, and I've heard from some people who ask the question, why have these uh, local school councils, the LSCs, why have them if they they really don't have much input, especially when it comes to what should be happening as far as safety within their schools? I mean, why is that? Why don't LSCs, why aren't they involved in the conversation, or are they? Well, you know, I find that very interesting, Nick, because when the political left was trying to get police officers out of schools. Everyone wanted to hear from the local school council. Mm-hmm. Everyone said it was up to them to make that decision. But at the same time, when it comes to the health of the students, nobody wants to hear from the local school council, um, which is comprised of students, teachers, and parents and community members. Yeah. So I think there's uh, an imbalance to how we use it. And it's more of like when we use it when it's convenient, kind of like science. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be the case nowadays. Well, let me let me switch topics here and ask you about uh, remapping of Chicago's wards. This 
is still continuing to be drawn out. What is the latest, as you know? No pun intended. We're continuing to draw it out. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, well, as of right now, I don't think the, either sides are coming to any kind of agreement or negotiation. Right now, it feels as though everyone's digging in for the map that they've chosen. However, we're going to see how the uh, lakefront uh, liberals and some of the other right aldermen uh, react to the news that the People's Commission, which was the independent group of Chicago leaders who created a map based solely on numbers and communities, uh, how they react to the fact that they are now joining with the coalition map, citing that as the fair of the two maps that have been proposed, both in terms of representation as well as community cohesion. Um, we would all like to see everyone in that room act like adults and figure it out and hammer out a, ne a negotiation, but I just don't have faith in that process as of yet. But we'll see. The deadline for withdrawing the referendum issue is May 18th, and deadlines have a way of motivating people. So we'll see if the other side feels compelled to come to the table now that you know power is shifting away from them. What does that particular map look like? What shifts? Well, the coalition map focuses more on community cohesion and the actual data of the census. It focuses on the numbers, which is it counts every human being in the city and treats them equally and divides the wards in uh, 50 ways with community cohesion in mind. What we're seeing from the Black Caucus Rules Committee map is that they are twisting and writhing to try to manipulate the data just so that they could keep the incumbents in play. Uh, for example, they are stating that, you know, we should focus on citizens over residents, human beings of Chicago. They are saying that we should focus on people who are 18 and older, of voting age, as, and discounting everyone who's 17 and younger. That's not how the census works. That's not how redistricting works in a representative democracy. Every person counts. One man, one vote, as the philosophy goes. And that is what the coalition map is designed to do, and more and more people are coming to agree with that map. That's the map that I support uh, because it was based on numbers, and it was done in public. The other side's map was a backroom deal hidden from the world until quite literally uh, 30 minutes before the end of the city council two months ago. Um, so we're not trying to continue the backroom deals. We're not trying to continue the cloak-and-dagger mystery of remapping. This should all be a fair and open process, and hopefully that will motivate people to be a part of the map that puts Chicago's interest first as opposed to the incumbency of 50, 50 politicians. Does the, mayor, does the mayor get to weigh in on it at all? Uh, does she have any say-so or no? This is strictly something that's, that's kept within uh, the city council. Well, this is Chicago after all. And we know, even though mayors, uh, this one and all the ones before her, say that they have no, no fingers in the pot, we know that's just not the case. Their tentacles reach far and wide. Um, and I'm sure she has preferences. I'm sure uh, I've been told that there were uh, changes to my map that she wanted to see, like me not being in it. Um, but the fact <laughs> of the matter is that ultimately it is the 50 aldermen that decide. Now, she might lean on some of her friends to try and do things, but right now, the two maps are pretty much set. Um, so you have to decide if you want uh, maps that are compact and boxy and focus on neighborhoods 
or if you want maps where it looks like 50 squids that were stepped on on the pier, you know, that that's yeah. what you're going to be choosing from. And again, when's the deadline that uh, everyone has? Uh, so the final deadline, so let me backtrack. Right now, the Latino, the, the coalition uh, has filed their map for the referendum. So because two maps were introduced and no map was chosen, uh, the opportunity for the voters to decide is now available. Uh, the okay. coalition has filed their map for the referendum. So in the June primary, voters will be able to choose uh, from that map, or if someone else on the other side decides to finally file something for a referendum, they'll have that choice. Um, however, that referendum can be nullified uh, if it is withdrawn by May 18th, assuming that a yet-to-be-seen consensus map emerges and 41 aldermen support it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, speaking of voters, uh, Patrick Daly-Thompson has resigned. His uh, position is alderman, and the mayor gets to pick this appointment. Why is there not a special election? Why is the mayor... Um, allowed to to pick the replacement. I recently read that Mayor Daly, Richard M., appointed 28 aldermen during his 20-some years in office. Um, why not give the voters the chance? Uh, is this just part of Chicago tradition? Well, I think, when it, uh, for example, in the example of uh, Richard M., he may have appointed that many uh, aldermen, uh, to the city council, but a number of them had to also run in special elections as well. Right. And, okay. And in the city of Chicago, a special election is only called for if there are, I believe, more than half of the term still to be served. Uh, so I think it's 28 months uh, or more is what the law says at the state level, I believe. So if the vacancy occurs during that period uh, of term yet to be filled, then a special election will be called. However, in the circumstances surrounding uh, Alderman Thompson, with only 15 months left to go, that's less than the four-year term. So the mayor, therefore, has the right to pick uh, without needing a special election to confirm the community's choice. And, of course, I mean, I'm not discounting the fact that, you know, whoever does get picked, if they want to continue on the service, they, of course, are going to have to run a campaign and, you know, uh, go through an actual election. Um, is there anybody out there that, that, that you might want to see the mayor uh, pick to, to take over that position? You know, the mayor's come up with all kinds of ways to fill the positions. You know, I've worked with. Alderman Thompson, the 11th ward, is a, a neighboring ward to the 15th ward, so we have some mutual interest in things. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that uh, whomever the mayor chooses, he's the one who has the ability to bring some unity and stability to the 11th ward. You know, everyone from Chinatown, Bridgeport to Canaryville, all my friends in those neighborhoods, uh, is still in shock and reeling from the what has transpired this week. It's just been a very traumatic uh, on their political psyche uh, and you need somebody who can walk in not be a firebrand not be trying to burn the house down to make a point you need someone who has the ability to unite people um, I personally think uh, my good friend former alderman Jim Balser would make a great stand-in for the next 15 months serving the people of the 11th ward having been elected to the alderman's position 
I believe, four times um, and help guide it through this transition. Clearly, we know the map is going to change on the 11th Ward, but I think he has the ability to ensure some continuity of both service and leadership that is much needed in that community at this time. Yeah, and I'm sure it's important to have somebody that understands how it works and has been there maybe and, and can get along with neighboring wards. I mean, that's an important uh, thing that you that you mentioned there. It's right next door. Um, is there anything I'm happening in your... Retired, so I don't know if he'd want to stay for the job. He might just be wanting to, you know, guide it through the transition to the next alderman. Sure. Which is, you know, sure. good too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, anything happening in your ward that you want to let people know about? Anything you want to highlight? No dibs. Just no fault. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm tired of dips. No. Um, right now in my ward, we are reaching out. We're trying to help brace my residents for their property tax uh, assessments. You know, we're seeing properties, uh, the property values from the assessor's office double and triple in certain cases. So we want to make sure that anybody who needs help filing a tax appeal through the help of our Board of Review Commissioners like Tammy Went are able to call my office and we can get the ball rolling for them. And my thanks to 15th Ward Alderman Ray Lopez. Up next, the Reporter Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. It's time for the Reporter Roundtable. I'm Mallory Vorbroker in for Nick Gale. Let's welcome in Greg Hines with Crane's Chicago Business, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, Heather Sharon of WTTW, and Peter Hancock with Capital News Illinois. Let's start with the battle over mask mandates. The Illinois Appellate Court dismissed Governor Pritzker's appeal, but the fight seems not to be over. The governor is working with the Attorney General to request an expedited review of this decision from the Supreme Court. Do you think the governor was planning on this battle to go where it went this week? Well, let me let me take a swing at that. I thought that the governor um, sounded like he was pretty confident that he could get uh, the lower court, the judge from Sangamon County, uh, that person's opinion uh, overturned, that they ruled against him, and he was kind of down. Uh, playing that and uh, kind of making it sound like, well, you know, that's just a downstate judge. Now it's going to the appellate court. We'll have some real um, justice here. And they whacked him. So now he's going to take it to the Supreme Court. And I just think that uh, they weren't totally prepared for it to be beaten there in the Supreme in, in uh, the appellate court. And uh, they didn't expect to be beaten in this obscure but uh, semi-powerful uh, committee called the Joint Commission or Joint Committee on Administrative Rules, which is a bipartisan, bicameral committee that oversees um, uh, some of the rulemaking that the administration does. Yeah, I think Ray's got that about right. Uh, uh, the, the politics of us are that uh, mass mandates are increasingly unpopular, although Prescott uh, wants to stick with them uh, for uh, for future reasons, uh, who knows what's going to happen uh, in terms of more variants, if nothing else. Uh, but uh, essentially, the uh, uh, the committee Ray was referring to would had to reissue and reapprove the rules, refused to do so, say, well, this is in court. Let's let the judges decide. The judges said, well, we can't decide because the committee hasn't done anything. So, you know, it, it, the monkey's all pointing the monkey to the left and the monkey to the right. Uh, in the meantime, 
malpractice are going to try to go to the Supreme Court, but they could uh, they could punt it back to the legislature too. It's a real mess. Yeah, this is Peter Hancock down in Springfield, and it might be helpful to just kind of go through the history of this a little bit. On February 4th, a Sangamon County judge issued a temporary restraining order against the mask mandates and other COVID mitigations in public schools, at least as they applied to about 170 school districts that were these consolidated lawsuits. The Pritzker administration appealed that while the appeal was pending, the emergency rules these were all based on expired. Department of Public Health tried to renew them, and this legislative committee, JCAR, as it's called, said, well, we've got this restraining order, and it's on appeal. We want to sit here and wait and see how this shakes out in the court. And then the fourth district says, well, because JCAR didn't act or didn't extend the rules, the issue is moot. We don't have anything to decide. So that's kind of where we're sitting right now. Yeah, the next guy needs to take care of it, not us. Does the governor still have the executive power he once had on this issue? Well, we don't know. I mean, until the until the courts finally end up further resolving this thing, it's kind of up in the air. The governor says yes, but uh, if the court's not willing to enforce it, uh, it's useless. Yeah, uh, it's it's very confusing. Um, the governor and the attorney general are saying the executive orders are still in place. The fourth district said that the temporary restraining order did apply to the executive orders. Uh, so it's unclear how much executive, how much of those executive orders are still in place. Heather, how how is this all going to impact uh, the Chicago schools? It is not going to impact the Chicago schools at all. And that's because um, if you cast your memory back to January, the agreement that ended the five-day work stoppage included an an agreement between the Chicago's Teachers Union and the district that teachers and students would be fully masked until late August. So this decision, both the lower court ruling and the appellate decision this morning, or I guess late last night, um, has no impact on that agreement. So Chicago is completely excluded from this honestly chaos. And there were many, many school districts that were not named in the original suit that dropped their mask mandates literally overnight after JCAR, that committee we were talking about, failed to act and reissue the mask mandate for schools. So today's ruling at the appellate court level only continues that confusion for a lot of districts. I anticipate that a lot of districts that were waiting for the appellate court to act will also drop their mask mandates, if for no other reason, for fear that they will be sued for enforcing an illegal mandate on children and parents um, who don't want to follow it. So uh, I I think that, you know, the politics of this is is one thing. I think it's important to remember that there are, you know, literally tens of thousands of Illinois students and, and their their families who had their lives upended this week by this changing rule where the rules that had been in person learning restarted after the, the beginning of the pandemic were upended. And I think that is going to be something that politicians of both parties are going to have to grapple with. Yeah, I would echo what Heather just said there. Um, the Illinois Federation of Teachers put out a statement uh early today, Friday, uh, saying, you know, these things were negotiated between
between the district administration and local teachers unions and they are strongly encouraging districts and school boards to adhere to those collective bargaining agreements i would not be so sure though that, that this chaos uh, uh, isn't going to creep into chicago um yes there is such an agreement uh, and yes chicago is probably more pro-mask than uh, than any other section of the state, but uh, the opponents of, of mass are increasingly observers and loud and uh, demonstrative in trying to get their way. I would not be surprised to see if you're going to see some parent revolts in a few areas and, uh, and, and, and objections to continue this one way or the other. Uh, you know, if, if there's chaos right next door, it's going to spread. It's just inevitable. Well, it all, it, it, speaking of next door, it happened right in the in the Capitol, in the House floor yesterday, where nine lawmakers got uh, removed because they didn't have their masks on. All Republicans, by the way. And, and uh, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were all from the downstate area. Is that correct? Or were they all over the state? Yeah, I, I think they were mainly from downstate. They were all Republicans. Uh, I didn't see any from the Chicagoland area. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that the Springfield School District right here is one of the districts that's named in the lawsuit. Uh, I live on a street where I see high school kids, you know, walking in the morning, going to school, and then coming back out to their cars. Some of them are masked. Some of them aren't. You know, I, I think there's a lot of confusion all over the state about what they're supposed to be doing right now. Is Springfield mask optional? You know, I, I don't know exactly what the rule is right now, but they are covered by the TRO. Uh, so I'm assuming, you know, it's probably mask optional. Uh, but the kids around here seem uh, pretty aware. that They're a pretty savvy uh, set of high school kids around here. And I think a lot of them, you know, I can just see them walking by my window going to school in the morning, and most of them are wearing masks. Sangamon County, where Springfield is, also had a surge there a few weeks ago that uh, was alarming to some folks, uh, so that could play a role in that, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it did get pretty serious here during the height of the Omicron surge. Uh, that appears to be waning right now. Uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Governor Pritzker's plans to lift his mask mandate for most indoor places happens at the end of the month. The mayor hasn't committed to her plan yet for Chicago, but with this shift happening, do you think that will fizzle all of these arguments out? It's going to be tough, uh, assuming, assuming we don't see any changes in the direction of the numbers, and the numbers have been dropping pretty steadily now for about a month. It's going to be very difficult uh, for the mayor not to follow the governor's lead and probably almost impossible for the governor not to uh, implement what he's already said he's going to do, which is to lift the mass mandates uh, at the end of the month. Um, uh, you know, I, I think there's an argument to be made that may we're going a little fast here. I kind of like the idea that in certain settings you have to prove you've been vaccinated to get in, but uh, the opposition of that is, is growing. Uh, uh, this, this governor's running for re-election. This mayor's running for re-election. Uh, they both know how to count, and uh, this is causing some difficulties for them. I'm less certain than Greg is that Chicago will drop its mask mandate in concert with the state simply because the metrics that the city 
he has said um, are not there yet. And the city is is not anywhere close um, at this point to sort of even triggering the start of what the what Mayor Lightfoot said would need to be a 14-day period where the risk of contracting COVID in Chicago is either at lower risk or low risk. Right now, the risk in Chicago is substantial, and that is in line with CDC guidelines that say in places where there is substantial transmission, people need to wear masks indoors. And both Mayor Lightfoot and Dr. Arwady said they'd like to see a, you know, a significant amount of time at those two levels before before the mask mandate lifts, there was some wishy-washiness, uh, you know, whether they would go along with the state if it was a matter of three or four days. Well, now we're we're at day four, where the city's metrics are not in line with dropping that mask mandate. So I, I think that um, people in Chicago should um, keep, keep a close eye on those metrics, because I'm not sure that the mayor is going to move with the state. You know, I thought it was interesting uh, a week or two ago, uh, the governor and Dr. Ngozi Azike, the director of the public health, state public health department, had a news conference. They were announcing uh, that they were planning to uh, lower the statewide indoor mask mandate. And they started using this phrase about living with COVID or coexisting with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hadn't really heard that from them before, but I think we're entering a phase where a sizable percentage of the population and even the over 12 population is now vaccinated. Uh, we have a lot of different tools, including therapeutics to treat COVID patients. And so I, I just sort of sense that we're moving into a different phase of this crisis where we're going to have to accept that it's around and you take your precautions, but people have to get back to life. That's exactly the argument we're, we're right in the middle of right now, whether uh, whether it, we're going to do that or whether we're going to hold out for, for hitting the metrics. Um, good fight. And the metrics have been getting very complicated lately. Uh, earlier, we were going by test positivity rates and the number of cases, but now you have so many at-home uh, quick tests available. It's, we're not entirely sure that public local public health departments really have a handle on the exact number of cases. So they're looking at a combination of things, hospitalizations, ICU usage, vaccination rates, uh, you know, the rate of spread, those sorts of things. Uh, there isn't really one single metric you can lean on to give a, a total picture of what the pandemic situation is in any one jurisdiction. Let's move out of the mask mandate debate because it sounds like it is foggy and going to continue. Earlier this week, 11th Ward Alderman Patrick Daly Thompson was convicted of two counts of lying to regulators and five counts of filing false federal income tax returns. He's the grandson and nephew of former mayors Richard Day and Richard M. Daly. What does this conviction do to the family legacy? Or is this something uh, Chicagoans are used to and expect from the family? Oh, there's, uh, with the exception of, of, of Richard Veneca, who's a cousin who was convicted in a, uh, uh, in, a, in a rather nasty personal assault case. Um, the family, nobody in the family has ever been formally charged with, much as convicted of actual kind of corruption, financial corruption. 
which this involves, where uh, here the, the allegation essentially is that to this powerful alderman uh, uh, worked out a deal where, where he could get loans he didn't have to pay back and didn't report it on his, on his taxes. It's the kind of thing that most of us uh, aren't in a position to do. You know, Mr. Daly, there's only one other Daly still left who still holds government office. That's John Daly, the county commissioner. He's well up there in years. Uh, nobody in the younger generation, with the exception of Mr. Thompson, seems to have been interested. So, you know, all things must end. Uh, it doesn't last forever, particularly when it involves people. And in this case, uh, the, the reign of this family that uh, really controlled this town politically for well over half a century appears to be pretty much done. Yeah, the thing that struck me, too, is that uh, on these loans, as I understood it, uh, he was uh, taking out what was uh, viewed as a line of credit versus an actual mortgage, which you could uh, deduct from your taxes. But he wasn't making payments on on them anyway. But it's also just a a misrepresentation that – he got caught up with too. It, it sounded also like he's disorganized. I can I can relate to that to a degree, uh, but right. uh, he's d- disorganized to the point. If he were if he were telling the truth, um, and the jury must not have believed he was, then uh, he would have been so disorganized that he couldn't remember. Whether he had a hundred thousand dollar loan or and a couple of others for twenty or thirty or something like that, and uh, that he only owed uh, X amount versus two hundred, you know, only owed maybe a hundred hundred thousand versus um, versus a couple of hundred thousand. So it's it's uh, one of those things where I think some people could relate to. However, there were so many things that that just didn't add up, <laughs> no pun intended, but just didn't add up to the jury uh, that they just uh, decided to uh, unanimously convict him on all counts. Are you saying, Ray, that at tax time uh, you're not going to tell the IRS that, golly, gee, I, I'm disorganized, I forgot to include my Tribune salary? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I would I would love to get a discount out of it, Greg, but <laughs> it's not big enough anyway. Uh, speaking of rains, Ray, a preview of your new book was published in the Tribune, The House That Madigan Built, the record run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer. Uh, you started off the piece with, what does the speaker think? That is Speaker of the House, Mike Madigan. Will you give us a preview of the preview for those who missed it? Yeah, well, thank you for letting me talk about it, uh, Mallory. Uh, I put together this book, and it's coming out in March, March 22nd. And um, it basically doesn't tell every uh, type of uh, oatmeal or cereal that the speaker uh, uh, ate growing up. It is not a biography, but it it focuses on many of his um, uh, big achievements, whether they uh, ended up to uh, be ones that made him a legend or ones that uh, he, he left humiliated on. So um, when I said, when I started the whole thing with what does, this, does the speaker think, the importance is that whatever he thought about whatever bill for decades was really the 
bottom line of what would go forward and what would suffocate, what would uh, be passed and what wouldn't. And so he had so much power that uh, he not only was uh, shaping the house that he ruled, but it was uh, uh, decisions that he made that really developed the house that we all live in here in Illinois. What would the speaker say about the mask debate happening now? <laughs> you know, he probably wouldn't say much of anything because he didn't say anything uh, it, it, for a long time when he didn't want to weigh in. But I think you'd eventually get a decision. He would uh, pull in a lot of different uh, ideas that were de- being debated, and he would uh, try to find a middle ground if one was needed to get the votes to pass whichever way it was that he thought things should go. Or if he thought that they should be blocked, he would calculate in uh, who could take a vote to block it and who could not, and he would protect uh, his uh, members on the House Democratic side, or he would put a, up a piece of legislation that he thought he could embarrass the legis- uh, legislators who are Republican. And so uh, he knew how to play the the game, the legislative game, so that it helped his um his uh, House Democrats politically, uh, and, uh, you know, if it happened to help the public uh, as well, you know, that's great. But uh, he was always doing the calculations of what would be best for the speaker to retain his speakership and to retain uh, his majority. And he was always looking out for uh, his lawmakers to retain that majority. The book covers a whole bunch of things, obviously. It goes from, I've been covering him since 1981, and it it, it covers things like uh, his uh, mastery of uh, redistricting, his mastery of of, uh, how to pass a tax increase, including one that was nicknamed Operation Cobra that uh, was slammed through in six hours in 1989. Talks about the whites, him saving the White Sox uh, and pushing, put, holding on to the clock, so that they could get uh, that bill passed um, at the in the waning moments of the of the General Assembly in '88. But it also goes all the way up through his uh, time uh, over the last few years, where he hit a turning point with the um, with the. Uh, uh, sexual harassment scandals that were among his uh, members, and it uh, takes on uh, the ComEd scandal that he is engulfed on, and really uh, what weighed him down and and caused him to uh, lose the speakership. So it's a it's a broad view, um, and I try to uh, mix in some of the of the color of what it was like covering him, as well as as some of the times that uh, I got scoops and some of the times I got beat. And that's one of the things you're going to come up against here in the uh, course of of covering um, on a coverage on a competitive beat over the years. Ray, I'm curious, are we ever going to see another Mike Manigan or was he a peculiar uh, product of a particular time that won't be repeated? I think it will be very difficult. Um, one of the things that uh, came out came out uh, over the years that made a difference for him was he had uh, the support of Richard J. Daly at the beginning. He was able to cut out 
his own path then in Springfield, and he was able to uh, rise just at the time that the legislature had changed from this multi-district accumulative voting system that allowed uh, minority representation in uh, each district. So you could have three members from each district to this current one, which has single members. That's created a much more partisan atmosphere. And as a result, you've seen um, the politics and the power go more and more to the four legislative leaders. And he recognized that early retained his position and continued to capitalize on it to the point where he could be the guy who determined what went through the legislature because he could either push something or he could stop something. Thank you, Ray. There's so much more to go over from the week, but we are out of time. Look for Ray's book, The House That Madigan Built, out next month, March 22nd, but you can get it on pre-order now where books are sold. Read Greg Hines at craneschicagobusiness.com and watch him on Juice Week in Review, Crane's live stream podcast on politics and power. Find Heather Sharon on WTTW Channel 11 every weekday night on Chicago Tonight at 7 p.m. Her stories can be found at news.wttw.com and find Peter Hancock at capitalnewsillinois.com. Thank you to my panelists for joining and enjoy listening to Lauren Cohn. This was Connected to Chicago on WLS AM 890. With the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. And three months after breaking ground on a life sciences building, Sterling Bay has unveiled the next phase of its $6 billion Lincoln Yards mega development on the north side, taking an industrial site and transforming it. Here to talk more about both is Dr. Suzette McKinney, Principal and Director of Life Sciences with Sterling Bay. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about the Life Sciences Building. So our new Life Sciences Building, Ally at 1229 West Concord, is the first Life Sciences Building at Lincoln Yards. It's an eight-story, 320,000-square-foot, state-of-the-art lab facility that will merge modern scientific research and creative office, which is a much-needed asset class in Chicago today. And, you know, Lauren, I have to just tell you that Chicago's life sciences community is growing rapidly, but as a city, we're really short on lab space to house their operations. So what makes Ally so important is that it's not only um, critical to advancing Sterling Bay's vision for Lincoln Yards as a future home for life sciences innovation, but it's also going to be a place where we can help the city expand its reputation as a hub for biotech. And we certainly need these and things like this in this difficult economic times. In terms of the whole project, it's really a huge transformation that's very impressive along the river. Yes, uh, Lincoln Yards is definitely Chicago's most transformative new development. The project will revitalize over 50 acres of former industrial corridor along the Chicago River into a really vibrant, active community for all Chicagoans. And what I will tell you is that after spending several years on environmental remediation, cleaning up over a century's worth of industrial damage at the site, we are now so excited to be moving forward with vertical 
capital development. So um, certainly an exciting milestone for the overall project. Yeah, what the public needs to know is it's residential, commercial. We've got recreational activities, dining, athletic, athletic fields, a dog run, entertainment venues. It's really very, very interesting. Has the pandemic affected construction in your timeline at all? You know, um, to some degree, yes. I mean, you know, everyone is experiencing supply chain delays, but I think for us it has just been uh, impacted in terms of being able to get all of the approvals that we need, you know, when we see spikes in COVID, you know, lots of workplaces go back to remote or back to hybrid. And so, you know, we've had uh, some impacts from COVID, but I would say overall, we're very fortunate that we've just um, been able to stay the course and try and keep things moving. And finally, what's the estimated completion date and estimated, you know, possible job creation here? Well, as you know, it is a multi-year project. We um, have forecasted a 10-year construction timeline overall, but there are various phases of the project, including the steel yard, which will deliver to the public on an incremental basis. So, for example, we anticipate that the steel yard and all of the public benefits will be available for enjoyment beginning in 2024. In terms of job creation, you know, I would say one of the most important public benefits of this development is the amount of jobs that it will create for Chicagoans. So starting right now, we're already underway 10,000 full-time construction jobs, and we will have active construction. We have it going on at the site now, and we are employing our neighbors from all around the city. And then um, we're forecasting 24,000 permanent on-site jobs. Um, once the project is complete, everything from hospitality to retail to professional services and life sciences, really just 24,000 permanent on-site jobs across all industries. And I finally would add that Sterling Bay is just so extremely proud that Lincoln Yards will put people to work because it's critical to our local economy's post-pandemic recovery, as well as to our future as a sustainable home for generations to come. That is so true. Dr. Suzette McKinney of Sterling Bay, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. 